so glad I didn't see anybody leave <laughs> when it was announced I'd be speaking. I can't believe it. It's over 13 years ago that I retired, and uh, be 51 years ago next month that Donna and I came here to Martinsdale. I still can't believe this church would invite a seven-year-old boy to come and be pastor. <laughs> but uh, that's the way it was. It's really good to be here up front with you today. Uh, scary. Uh, I can't remember, how, believe how scared I was that first Sunday uh, to speak at Martinsdale. I grew up with a fear of public speaking, and I don't think I ever got rid of it. And it continues to this day, but I will try. I want to follow up today on the resurrection time we had last Sunday and the days before. You know, the most important matter in all of life is that we be saved. That we receive the great salvation that God has for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. By nature, as Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 3, we all have sinned against God. He quotes from the Old Testament that none is righteous. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. There's no one who does good. As a consequence, if left to ourselves, we would all be facing the absolute certain judgment of God because of our sin. But as you know, God has not left us to ourselves. In his great love and his great grace, he has provided rescue through the gospel. Now, we may have heard the gospel and even received it, and yet it's so easy to forget its essence, to lose sight of its significance. That, in fact, had happened with the believers at Corinth. So Paul, in his great 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, to which I want to turn with you this morning, Paul begins this chapter with a reminder for the believers at Corinth of the gospel. So important for them and so important for us as well. He opens this great chapter, this reminder, we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses with these words. Now I would remind you, brothers, my fellow Christians, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain." Paul had preached the gospel to these people in Corinth years <clears throat> earlier, and they had received it. They had listened, they understood what he said, and they believed it. They embraced it with all their hearts, the gospel that Paul proclaimed to them. Further, it was that gospel, Paul says, in which they now stood 
That is, they have a firm standing before God, justified by his grace, through the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that they were led to by the apostles' preaching. Further yet, it was by that gospel, he says, that they were being saved. You know, the term saved in the Bible has three tenses to it. We're saved from the penalty of our sin at the moment we trust Christ as Savior. We will be saved one day in the future from the very presence of sin. And then right now, we are in the process of being saved, rescued from the power of sin in our lives. And Paul is saying to these people here that they are being saved daily through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, a, they were coming to grow in their relationship with the Lord. They were coming to know him better and better. Their lives were being increasingly matured in the Lord Jesus. A necessary condition for that to continue to be true for them is that if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, he's not questioning here the security of their salvation. That issue is crystal clear in the scripture for Paul. Nor is he suggesting that they have to work hard to keep themselves justified before God. Uh, Rather, he's simply challenging them to keep faithful in their walk with the Lord, in their daily walk, to be taking the message seriously of the gospel by applying it faithfully to their lives. At the end of verse uh, 2, he adds this condition. He says, unless you believed in vain. That would be true that they had believed in vain to no end if Christ had not risen from the dead. Paul says down in verse 17 of this chapter, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And so he's going to be expanding upon that reality, but he just introduces it here at this point, uh, the possibility that uh, their faith would be nothing if in fact Christ had not risen from the dead. But he did rise from the dead, and Paul's going to be talking about that firmly. Now, the majority then of those to whom he's writing in the city of Corinth had received the gospel. They had a firm standing before God in the gospel. And they were furthermore in the process of being saved, rescued from the power of sin in their lives. But he so much wanted to keep them for them to keep the gospel very clear in their thinking that that growth, that maturing in the Lord Jesus would be a constant in their experience. And consequently, he begins in verse 3 by giving a reminder of exactly what the gospel is. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He opens here by reminding them that he delivered what he had received. The gospel was not something he had made up. It was not something that was passed down to him by tradition. 
It was not something that had been just the theory of other people around him, but it's something that God himself had given to him. This is a statement, I think, very close to what Paul tells Timothy, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and therefore is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That Paul says, I received what I, what I gave to you, what I delivered to you. I received it from the Lord and you took it that way. It was that fact that he received this gospel from the Lord that gave him and the other apostles the confidence, the courage, the boldness that they had to take the message to the ends of the earth. And that gospel, as he says here, is of first importance. There is nothing more important in your life or mine or anybody else's life than to know, to understand this gospel that Paul had preached unto these people. God has revealed many other truths in his word, but underlying, undergirding everything else is the gospel of Jesus Christ, as Paul states it here. It's of first importance. Now, with that in mind, Paul goes on immediately to define the gospel very specifically. And he says the first part of it is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. As I've already stated, sin is true of all of us. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And it's an extremely serious matter far more serious than most people grasp, that we have rebelled, we have violated, we have rejected the God who made us in sin that we do. And the penalty has to be paid. God is a holy God. He cannot simply look at sin and turn his head and forget it. The sin must be judged. And either we are going to pay the penalty or someone with no sin of their own and willing to pay for ours is going to have to step into the picture and pay it for us. And that's exactly what Scripture predicted that the Savior would do for us when he would come. For example, in Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to our own way. And the Lord, speaking of God the Father, hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's spoken in the past tense, but that is consistent with the Old Testament. That so certain is it that that's going to happen, that it's spoken in the past tense as though it's already been an accomplished reality. And in fulfillment of it, Jesus came as that promised Savior and died on the cross in our place. Over in 2 Corinthians, the next letter of the New Testament in chapter 5, In verse 21, Paul says, For our sake, he that is God the Father made him Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. He had none of his own at all. To be sin uh, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Lord Jesus Christ came and went to the cross in order that he might pay the penalty 
of our sin in our place as our substitute. The proof that he really died and that the penalty of our sin has been paid is what Paul says there at the beginning of verse 4, that he was buried. You know, some down through the years have suggested that Jesus only swooned on the cross and after being laid in the tomb, he revived in the cool dampness of the tomb and went out and uh, convinced everybody that he was alive from the dead. The fact is that he died on the cross. The soldiers who were not believers in him wanted to affirm that and so they put a spear in his side He was embalmed, his body was wrapped in linen cloths, and he was laid in a sealed tomb that was guarded by the soldiers. He really died for our sin and proved it by the burial in the tomb. But you know, if he had stayed died, he had stayed dead, there would be no salvation for us No victory over sin and over death. No assurance that his sacrifice on the cross was really accepted by the Father. So, we have a second part to the gospel and how I praise God for it. And that is, in verse 4 going on, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he was raised from the dead. You know, when the Bible talks about being raised here, it's not talking simply about resuscitation, being brought back to life and breathing again and going on in his body, but it has to do with a new life in a new body, a body that came from the body that he had, but was gloriously different. A body that was prepared for eternity. A body with no limitations. A body without any pain, without any uh, death. A body that is fitted for eternity is the kind of body that the Lord Jesus received. And God has given us powerful proof that Jesus rose that way from the dead. One proof is that it was predicted in the Old Testament scriptures, as Paul says here, uh, centuries earlier. Paul, at his trial in Acts chapter 26, says, I teach nothing except what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead. Over and over again, directly or indirectly, Literally or with figures of speech, the Old Testament predicted the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he rose exactly as was predicted. Another proof, Paul doesn't refer to it right here, would be the fact of the empty tomb. Some have suggested that the disciples stole his body and then announced his resurrection, but the tomb had been 
guarded very carefully, not by the disciples, but by soldiers. The disciples weren't that kind of people who would lie like that, and they certainly wouldn't die as virtually all of them did for that which they knew to be a lie. Others have suggested that the authorities moved the body, but if that was the case, why not lead everybody back to where the tomb was and where his body was in order to uh, thwart the message of the disciples? Others suggest that the disciples went to the wrong tomb. But again, while that's absurd in itself, it had been so easy for the authorities simply to lead uh, anyone back to the real tomb where he was buried. But the greatest proof is the one that Paul points to here in this passage. And that is the appearances of the Lord Jesus to many different people on many different occasions. Many times, eating with them, talking with them, walking with them, being touched by them, uh, affirming in so many ways that he was really alive from the dead. He speaks here first that he appeared to Cephas, that is to Peter. You remember that Peter had denied the Lord three times as Jesus predicted that he would. And after Jesus' death and burial, Peter was devastated by what he had done. And I think the Lord Jesus, just out of his grace and out of his love for Peter, and to prepare him for the role that he would have, came to him as the first of the disciples to reveal himself. And when it says that he revealed himself, it's not just simply that he appeared, but he demonstrated that he, in fact, was the Savior, the resurrected one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter saw, and he believed, and he became <clears throat> the leader among the disciples, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. I'm sorry about my throat, <clears throat> but put up with it. I have to. <laughs> and then Peter says he appeared to the twelve. Now Judas was already dead, but the group of the disciples was still called the Twelve, just as a name for the whole group. And he appeared to them. Uh, I think they were not expecting to see Jesus alive from the dead. They did not anticipate it. They did not believe it, even though Jesus had talked about it. But it would be essential for them that they were to be apostles of the Lord and lay the foundation of the church in the world that they see with their own eyes and can bear testimony to people everywhere that Jesus was, was really alive from the dead, that he was the resurrected one. And so he appeared to the 12. Then he says he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. We don't have any record in the scripture of when that happened, but obviously it did happen and that he appeared to more than 500 at one time, uh, showing himself to be the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Son of God. And all these saw with their own eyes and could bear testimony to the fact of his resurrection. 
You know, some have suggested that the reported appearances of Jesus were simply hallucinations that people had, but 500 people don't have the same hallucination, nor would they give the same uh, report in regard to what they had seen. These 500 people were around. Some of them, as Paul says here, uh, have fallen asleep. By the way, that's wonderful language for us to be conscious of. Paul is speaking here, as he does later in this chapter, of the bodies of these believers who had died. And while their bodies are put into the ground, uh, it's just temporary. The day is going to come when, like Christ, he is going to raise us from the dead, transform our bodies, while our bodies will come from this present body like a seed planted in the ground, a body, a, a plant comes from the seed planted in the ground, so our future bodies will come from this present body, but the future body will be gloriously more wonderful. And Paul is just reminding them here that there are some of these 500 who are asleep now, who have died in Christ, who we're going to see again, but the far majority of them were still alive. They could be talked to, they could be interacted with, they could confirm what they had seen, that the Lord Jesus Christ was alive from the dead. He says, furthermore, that he appeared to James. I think, undoubtedly, this James, and there are several in the New Testament, was the half-brother. Thank you, Barb. I've got one. And that's not Jeremy's from last week. <laughs> that's mine. That uh, There are several Jameses in the New Testament, but uh, I think, along with most, that this James was undoubtedly the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, Mary had other children after Jesus was born. Jesus born uh, through the virgin birth, but the others, Joseph and Mary, having children. And James was a half-brother of Jesus. And he did not believe in Jesus. He did not believe that he was the Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament. You can anticipate that a brother would be very hesitant to come to believe such a thing about uh, his brother, and so James just simply did not believe at all. And, uh, but the day came in which Jesus appeared to him. And again, appearing, not just he saw him supposedly, but really understood that this was Jesus, his brother. And uh, everything changed for him. He put his faith in Jesus to be his savior he became the author of the book of James that we have in the New Testament. And uh, he was eventually the leader of the Church of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. Jesus appeared to James. Furthermore, he appeared to all the apostles. I assume here that he's looking at the gathering together of the 12 plus other leaders at the time of Jesus' ascension back to the Father in heaven. And that he appeared one more time, just affirming without any doubt at all that he was Jesus, the Son of God. And they saw him as he ascended back to the Father in heaven. And then, last of all, Paul says, he appeared to himself as to one untimely born. 
I think Paul undoubtedly is referring here to the fact that he came along after the other apostles, after Jesus' time here on the earth, after his ascension to heaven, and he, after a period of time, uh, came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture reviews three times over in the book of Acts the story that, uh, of what took place. Paul, who was known as Saul at that time, as you know, hated Jesus Christ. He wanted nothing to do with him, and he had one mission in life, to pursue after Christians wherever they were in order to incarcerate them and even to have them put to death. And it was while he was on the way to Damascus to pursue after Christians that Jesus Christ in his great grace appeared to him and again appeared. He knew that that was the Lord Jesus Christ that he was looking at. And everything changed for him as a result of that. It brought about a powerful recognition on his part of his sinfulness. As he says here in uh, verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Saul came to see his sinfulness, his guilt before God, and he never got over it. I don't think he ever you know, kept on beating himself on the back because of what he had done, but he never lost an awareness of the fact of his natural sinfulness before God and of his need of a Savior. You know, a mere dream about Jesus would never produce that kind of an effect in a person's life. It took a direct encounter for Paul with the Lord Jesus to come to see the sinfulness of his sin. Furthermore, it led to a total transformation of his character. Look at verse 10. But by the grace of God, and by his grace alone, his goodness to me who deserved the opposite is the meaning of grace. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul came to realize before he had been so proud, he'd been so arrogant, so self-sufficient. But now he came to realize that everything that he was, was totally by the grace of God at work in his life. And he loved him for what he had done. So it led to this total transformation by the way, I think that's one of the best evidences for the resurrection. We see it in the lives of all the disciples and the way that they were changed internally by seeing Jesus alive from the dead. Furthermore, for Paul, it led to a complete change of direction in his life. He says there at the end of verse 10 that, on the contrary, it, well, let me go back a little before that. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. I think Paul is not there being arrogant or proud at all in regard, boasting in regard to his own abilities and his own accomplishments. He talks here about the grace of God. It was God's grace at work in my life 
not me, not something that I accomplished, not something that I did, but it was God's grace in me. Before, in his life, he pursued Christians in order to bring them to death. But now as a result of God's grace in his life, he pursues people in order to bring them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the first two sermons after Pentecost that we have in the book of Acts focuses upon Jesus' resurrection. The broken-hearted followers of the crucified Christ were turned into courageous witnesses for him and even martyrs because of their faith in him. Belief in his resurrection affirmed for them their resurrection that they themselves would experience and as a result gave them an extremely different outlook on life as they lived it day by day. Because the resurrection of Christ is the cornerstone of our faith, it has been down through the years the greatest target that Satan has had in order to undermine biblical Christianity. He knows that if the resurrection is eliminated, then Christianity is eliminated. In this very chapter, down in verse 19, Paul says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Uh, the resurrection. Uh, this is fun. I thought it was a lizard or something, but it was a little girl <laughs> crawling across. If in this, Christ, in this life only we have hope in Christ, we of all people most to be pitied. There is nothing if there is not the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I appreciate the words of John MacArthur that just as the heart pumps life-giving blood to every part of the body, so the truth of the resurrection gives life to every other area of gospel truth. The resurrection is the pivot on which all of Christianity turns and with, and with which none of the other truths would much matter. Without the resurrection, Christianity would uh, be so much wishful thinking, taking place alongside all the other human philosophies and religious speculations. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, evidenced by the promise of the Old Testament that he would do that and that promise being fulfilled, evidenced by the empty tomb, supremely evidenced by the many, many appearances that the Lord Jesus made. Those appearances are powerful evidences and affirmations of the fact of the resurrection. So that faith in him is solidly grounded for us. The truth of the resurrection should lead us, first of all, to believe in him, as did the Corinthians, to acknowledge 
the reality of our sinfulness before God, to face that, to understand that Jesus died on the cross and paid for our sin, and that he really rose again from the dead on the third day, and then to make a decision to put our faith in Jesus Christ to be our Savior. There may be some of us here today who are aware of our sinfulness before God, who have heard the facts of Jesus' death on the cross to pay for our sin, of his resurrection again, but have not yet made that decision to put your faith in the Lord Jesus. I so much want to encourage you to do that, plead with you to do that. He is the only way, there is no other, of salvation, of acceptance with God. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the reason for that, he was not being arrogant. The reason for that is that he alone paid the penalty of your sin and mine and rose again from the dead, that through him we might have eternal life. Once we have trusted the Lord Jesus as our Savior, God's passion for us is that we will live for him. I just thought of the last verse of this chapter, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Paul says, therefore, in light of all this that I've said, and talking about our own resurrection, <clears throat> therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He wants every one of us to be abounding, not just little dabs and piddly pieces here and there, but people who are abounding in the work of the Lord because we know our labor is not in vain. This is all true. This is not religious talk. Jesus came and died on the cross to pay for my sin, proved it by being buried, rose again the third day, proved it by many different appearances unto his people. Paul concludes the chapter we're looking at, I mean the paragraph in verse 11 by these words, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Whether it was myself or the other apostles, those who came to you to speak, we all spoke exactly the same message, that Jesus Christ died for our sin. He was buried. He rose again the third day, and he was seen by many different people. The gospel is the most important good news that you and I can ever hear, ever, or that we can share with somebody else. People around us who have not yet trusted Christ are on their way to a Christless eternity, to eternal judgment. You and I who know the gospel, that Christ died for our sins and rose again, we have the ability to share with them that simple message and urge them to do what Paul urged the Corinthians to do, to believe in the Lord Jesus, to put their faith in him, to trust in him alone. They knew they were sinners, they understood what Jesus did, and so they made a decision to believe in him.
I so trust that's true with every single one of us who are here today. By God's grace. Let's sing this final song. I think I was supposed to pray at the end of the message. So let's bow together now and talk to the Lord. Father, we thank you with all of our hearts for the great salvation that you have provided for us through the Lord Jesus. What a glorious gospel you have given to us. And I pray that we will praise you, worship you, and serve you because of what you have done in our lives through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, so much that that will be true with every single person here. In Christ, I pray. Amen. Let's conclude by quoting a verse from the Bible that you know, and that's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. I was using the King James Version. The one I memorized as a kid in 1611. God bless you. Jeremy, are we dismissed? <laughs>